Father, we pray that now your word would go forth not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And we just sang, is the Lord and giver of life. We need life. God, I pray that you would cause your word to go forth in the life-giving power of the Spirit. And I pray that you would cause your word to go forth in a way that we would become more fully convinced of the good news about Jesus. And that your word would go forth in such a way that maybe some who in here are not trusting in that good news would become fully convinced of it and would turn to you in faith. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts what is pleasing to you now. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you to please open your Bibles or the Bible in the pew in front of you and turn to Acts 9. Acts 9. We finished verse 31 last week. And so we'll begin in verse 32 today. We're going straight through this book. Now the previous part of Acts chapter 9 has been all about the incredible conversion of Saul. Saul had been the church's chief persecutor. And then Jesus appeared to him in resurrected glory. And Jesus chose to make his greatest earthly enemy saved forgiven, part of his own beloved people. And more than that, Jesus chose to make Saul, a murderer, now a minister. And more specifically, an apostle. And more specifically, Christ chose that Saul would be his apostle to the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people of all nations. Verse 15 of Acts 9, look at that. The Lord said, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And then God spoke to us last week from the following verses, 19 through 31, and we heard Saul begin to proclaim the name of Christ, just like Jesus said that he would. And we know verse 32, where we'll start today, we know that begins something new in Acts, because we're not talking about the Lord's work through Saul anymore. Look at verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So beginning with this verse, the book of Acts follows Peter again for quite some time. And the first part of Peter's new work is our passage of Scripture for today. This passage can be summarized in four short sentences. Here's the first. Peter returns to the front line. Peter returns to the front line. Now, I'm not suggesting Peter had been taking a break from ministry while the book of Acts told us about Saul. Nothing like that. By this, I simply mean that Peter's ministry is once again the focal point of the book of Acts, the story of the advance of the gospel. And the Lord Jesus has been pushing the boundaries of his salvation farther and wider through Saul and Philip and others. And here in verse 32, he summons Peter back to the leading edge 
of the forward advance of the gospel. You can see verse 32 in that light if you see how it fits into the bigger picture of this book, and you need to see that, to understand this passage. Remember, Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is an all-important commission that Jesus gives to His apostles, and He told them that they would be His witnesses in three areas. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the rest of this book to show us how these marching orders of Jesus were fulfilled. That, that threefold commission in Acts 1.8 becomes a little three-point outline of the book of Acts. And of course it does. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is the Lord of all. His commands happen in history. Now first, in Acts, the name of Christ was proclaimed in Jerusalem. Jesus saved many in that city. Acts 6, 7 is a conclusion, summary statement that tells us this happened. Acts 6, 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly, catch this, in Jerusalem. All right, phase one of the Acts 1-8 commission. Check. After that, the name of Christ was proclaimed throughout Judea and Samaria. And Jesus saved many in these regions. And then Acts 9-31. Acts 9-31 is another conclusion summary statement that tells us this happened. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And it multiplied. Part 2 of the Acts 1-8 commission. Check. So we should expect then that this verse we're beginning with, verse 32 of chapter 9, would mark the beginning of the third and final phase. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's exactly what is happening here. The Lord Jesus brings Peter back to the front line because he's about to open up a new front for the church's advance to send the gospel to the ends of the earth, beyond the Jews, beyond the Samaritans, who were a Jew-Gentile mixed descent, now at last two full-fledged Gentiles to all nations. And the big breakthrough comes in the next chapter, chapter 10. Right after our passage in Acts 10, Jesus brings the good news of salvation in Christ through the Apostle Peter to a Gentile named Cornelius. And a whole house full of Gentiles hear the gospel, they believe it, they're saved, and for the first time, Gentiles are brought into the church. And then in Acts 11, the the church in Jerusalem hears about this conversion of Cornelius and how God has poured out the Holy Spirit even on the Gentiles. And they glorify God and they say, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They're amazed. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is about. The saving message of Christ begins to spread without restraint to many different nations Many different peoples, or in the language of Acts 1-8, to the ends of the earth. The conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile, it 
started this explosion of salvation on the earth. And the Lord's plan was for Peter to be the one to pull the pin of that grenade. That's the book of Acts in a nutshell. And so here, Peter returns to the front line as phase three of Acts begins. Now, perhaps some of you, if, if you've been listening carefully and thinking hard, you might be surprised that Peter is the man who's chosen for this job. Remember, this passage comes right on the heels of what? Saul's dramatic conversion and call. And his ministry is just getting started. Why leave him so suddenly? And especially at this moment, on the brink of the gospel going out to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, Jesus just said in verse 15, Saul is his chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles. So why isn't Saul his chosen instrument to carry his name to the Gentiles first? Jesus has a point to make through Peter. We have to remember how the Lord has used Peter previously in this book. And verse 32 helps us do that. It points us back to his prior work. Verse 32 again Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, or as he was traveling through all the regions that were just mentioned in verse 31, what were those? Judea, Galilee, Samaria. All right, that's where we last left the apostle Peter. He was preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Acts 8, 25. It's all going to hang with me. It's going to come together for you in a second. All right, do you remember back then the special role that, that Peter played when the gospel went to the Samaritans for the first time? The Lord Jesus worked through the prayers of the apostles Peter and John to give the Spirit for the first time to these new Samaritan Christians. And it was significant for Peter to be involved in that because before that, in Acts 2, when Jesus initially gave his spirit to the first Jews who trusted in him, that happened while Peter was preaching the gospel. So get this, when the Lord brought the gospel poured out his spirit on the Samaritans in chapter 8, what did he do? He brought Peter to the front line to demonstrate that these Samaritans were becoming part of the same church, that they were built on the foundation of the same apostles. They were equally part of the same body of Christ with the Jewish Christians before them in Jerusalem. And the Lord is doing the same thing here in chapter 9. As the Gentiles are about to be brought into the church, Jesus will give the Spirit to the Gentiles first through Peter's gospel ministry, just like he did with the Samaritans in chapter 8, just like he did with the Jews in chapter 2. Why? To show that these Gentiles are going to be part of the same one unified, Spirit-filled church that Jesus is building on earth. Peter returns to the front line in this verse because Jesus wants to make it clear that all believers will be one in Christ. To make it clear that there will be neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. All believers will share the same spirit of Christ, be part of the same body of Christ. He, he wanted this to be clear from the church's beginning. And that's why 
Jesus worked through the same apostle, Peter, when he first gave his spirit to the Jews, then the Samaritans, then the Gentiles. And that covers everyone. Look, how Jesus carefully orchestrated the early spread of the gospel to underline the church's unity. You see how important this is to Jesus? So important for us to understand the unity of the church and the equal spiritual status of everyone in it. Peter understood this. That's why in one of Peter's letters, he writes to the Christians there and he says, to those who have gained an equal standing with us, even with the apostles before Christ. This is important to Jesus. Here's the question. You should ask yourself, is it important to you? Is it as important to you, the unity of the church, as it clearly is to Jesus? Do you pray for the unity of the church? Jesus did. Jesus does. Do you join him in those intercessions? Do you work for the unity of the church in any ways? Do you work against the unity of the church in any ways? Here's another question. Are you truly grieved whenever you see the church fractured? Which is a way of asking, does it really matter to you? It matters to Jesus. That's why he brought Peter to the front line in Acts 9. He's trying to shape the early church's self-understanding that we're one unified body built on top of Christ's apostles and their testimony to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I told you this passage could be summed up in four short sentences. That was the first. Peter returns to the front line. Here's the next. Peter raises a paralyzed man. Peter raises a paralyzed man. Now, the end of verse 32 said, Peter came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. That was a little over 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Now, look at verse 33 now with me. See what happened there. There, Peter found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, Aeneas was likely part of the church in Lydda, whom Peter went to see and strengthen on this occasion. And we're told Aeneas had been laying down on his bed for eight years to emphasize how severe and long-standing his paralysis was. This man had not gotten up for almost a decade. And Jesus intended to change that on this day. Look at verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Note, Peter did not merely say, I heal you in the name of Jesus. He made it even more clear that the power and presence of Jesus was accomplishing this miracle because he said, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ, even though he has ascended to heaven, still was working on earth directly by his Spirit. And you're supposed to get that message from this verse also 
by hearing in this verse an echo of the words of Jesus in the Gospels. Did anyone hear that? Remember Jesus himself during his earthly ministry. He spoke to a paralyzed man. He said, rise, pick up your bed. And then immediately the man rose, Luke 5, 24 and 25. And Peter speaks very similarly, showing what? Christ's ministry on earth was continuing by his spirit through his apostles. And this is a story that sounds like it belongs in the Gospels, doesn't it? Well, that's because that man Jesus from the Gospels was still alive and was still working on earth. Aeneas is raised immediately. And then Jesus had planned to accomplish even more good and greater good through this healing miracle. Verse 35 tells us that. Look at verse 35. It says, All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So when Aeneas rose, people turned. Turning to the Lord indicates repentance. Turning means changing direction. The residents of these regions turned to walk towards a new treasure to the Lord. They chose to leave the path of sin and self-rule to entrust themselves to Jesus and start following Him. They saw proof in Aeneas's new legs that Jesus was the Lord. And the miracle then provided a platform for Peter and for other believers in the region, no doubt, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the authority of Christ, to proclaim the saving work of Christ. And many repented towards Christ. Again, that brings us to a question you should ask yourself. Do you see and believe in the authority of Jesus? Have you heard about what Jesus did to save sinners like us? Then you need to turn. Turn to Him. Repent towards God. Even believers, ask yourself, what are the ways that you are not walking towards God, that you are not walking with God, and then turn to walk that way. This is the Christian life. Look at Jesus healing Aeneas. Again, learn from this that Jesus is a compassionate God, and He is a capable Savior. He is worthy of your trust, and He is worthy of your turning. This is the kind of God that you want to turn to. Now, a second miracle follows the first one. As after Peter raises a paralyzed man, next he raises a dead woman. And that's the third key sentence to note to outline this passage. Peter raises a dead woman. Verse 36 describes the lady who had died. She was a believer, she was a very honorable woman. Verse 36, now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And that especially refers to deeds done to help the poor. Now, the next verse describes her death. 
the death of this precious sister in Christ whose life was full of good works. Verse 37, in those days, meaning in the days when Peter was in Lydda. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So her body was washed according to the burial customs of the day. And then she was made to lie in an upper room. Now that's significant for a couple of reasons. One we'll see later. For now, notice simply that she was put in an upper room instead of being anointed and buried. Which would have been the customary next steps to follow washing the dead body. Now perhaps she was put in an upper room instead of a grave because her friends had hope that she might be raised. Now, why might they? I think they heard that the Apostle Peter was in the area. Acts, Acts 5, which we have seen. Remember, verse 12. It told us many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the apostles. Acts 5.15 told us of a time that multitudes of men and women carried out the sick into the streets of Jerusalem and they laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And then sometimes, Acts 5 said, people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem and brought the sick and afflicted and those with unclean spirits to the apostles and they were all healed. So we understand, don't we, why in verse 38, Tabitha's friends call for the apostle Peter. Verse 38 says, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Now perhaps they had heard the Lord recently had worked through Peter to heal Aeneas. Peter comes, verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. She was a seamstress. Now clearly, this Tabitha had made quite an impact during her life. Good works matter. There in the upper room, look at it. Her body is laying there and a group of widows are weeping because of how much this lady cared for them. And they showed Peter the clothes Tabitha had made for them. They were probably wearing these garments. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to notice while reading the Scripture that caring for widows is a matter that is close to the Lord's heart. And God gave himself a title along these lines in the scripture that called us to worship at the beginning of this service. Psalm 68, 5 says, Protector of widows is God. The Lord sent Peter to this upper room, at least in part, because he loved these widows. And Tabitha showed godliness God-likeness when she cared for these sisters in Christ who could not totally care for themselves. And she made garments for the widows. These were, no doubt, 
some of the good works and the acts of charity, verse 36, talked about. I want to invite you, if you're a Christian, to think how you might imitate Tabitha as she imitates God. Do you know a needy sister in Christ who could use your help? Or maybe just your company? Notice again at the end of verse 39, Dorcas didn't just make clothes for them. She was, what does the end of the verse say? With them. That's a good work. Verse 40 tells us what happened after Peter spoke to, with the mourning widows. Verse 40, Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now again, this should sound familiar to you. It sounds like Jesus on purpose. The Spirit inspired Luke to record this story of Peter in a way that highlights correspondences to the prior works of Christ. Remember, Matt read it earlier in the service. Jesus raised a young girl from the dead in Mark 5 whose name was Talitha, daughter of Jairus. And verse 41 of Mark 5 says, Christ took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kumi, which in Aramaic means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, if we assume Peter was also speaking Aramaic here, he would have said almost the same words in this upper room, changing only one letter to get the girl's name right, Tabitha, kumi. And then Peter gave her his hand like Jesus did for Jairus' daughter. In verse 40 said, Peter put everyone outside the upper room before he raised Tabitha, just like Jesus. Mark 5, when he entered the room of Talitha, allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the child's parents. There's another time when Jesus raised the dead that Acts 9 is supposed to connect with. This is in Luke 7. Now remember, the book of Acts is a sequel. It's a sequel to the gospel of Luke. And we're meant to read Luke and Acts as a pair. It's the same author. It's the same project. Luke expects that when you read Acts 9, you're going to have his gospel in your memory. He expects you to make these connections. Clearly, there's a connection with the raising of Jairus' daughter. There's also a strong connection with an episode in Luke 7. Luke 7, 11 through 17, Jesus raised another. This time, Jesus raised the dead out of compassion for a widow whom he saw weeping. Her only son had died, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. Doesn't that sound like Acts 9 to you? Here we have widows weeping. Here we have a dead person who sat up, the end of verse 40, after Peter told her to arise. What is happening? The Lord is working replays of his miracles through Peter. 
And the same thing was happening in those verses that I read in chapter 5 earlier about all the people bringing the sick and the people with the unclean spirits on the cots and the mats and they were healed by the apostles and Peter especially. That sounds so much like the Lord's ministry in the Gospels, doesn't it? What's, what's the purpose of all these rerun miracles? Well, for starters, it points us again to the very special role that Christ assigned to the apostles. Christ continued his mighty works on earth through his apostles because that matches the way that Christ continued to speak on earth through his apostles. Jesus chose them, sent them out as his authoritative spokesmen, as his spirit inspired witnesses. The apostles were not just some random Christian guys. There's a reason why there's a first and second Peter in your Bible and there's not a first and second Keith. As an apostle, Peter wrote and spoke the words of the Lord just like we see him in Acts 9 working the works of the Lord. The Lord sent out the apostles as eyewitnesses of his resurrection that those were their credentials. And the inspired words that they preached and wrote, Jesus planned that would be the foundation of the church that Jesus would build on earth. Ephesians 2. Jesus gave us authoritative witnesses to tell us who he is and what he did to save sinners. And we have that now in this book. This is the inspired apostolic testimony. They're the words of the Lord through his apostles. And this special purpose of laying a foundation of testimony that Christ had for the apostles, that's the reason why Peter is brought back to the front line. Here in Acts 9, as we come to the brink of the Gentiles being saved into Christ's church, Peter's an apostle. Now, there is really a lot of confusion that could be avoided as believers try to understand the New Testament and try to apply the New Testament to our lives. Confusion could be avoided if we would just learn that the Lord had a special role for the apostles to play, and we are not apostles. There cannot be any more apostles today, and there doesn't need to be. The foundation of the church has been laid. We need to build on top of what Christ has already put down instead of trying to add to the finished foundation or, or to build another one. So, all right, here's one practical example for you of how this can help us apply the Bible rightly. It helps us to know that the miracle stories of Acts 9 are not supposed to be for us a step-by-step playbook for how we should regularly try to do evangelism. We're not apostles. Acts 2.43 said, Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Acts 5.12 said, Many signs and wonders were regularly done by the hands of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says signs and wonders and mighty works are, are called the signs of a true apostle. 
You notice the Christians in Joppa, they didn't try to raise Tabitha from the dead themselves, did they? No, they heard the apostle Peter was nearby and they urged him to come without delay. Now, I don't want you to mishear me and overcorrect here. I am not saying that we shouldn't pray for God to heal when someone we love gets sick. And I thank you, brother Justin, for leading us in that kind of prayer. That's good and right. And actually, James chapter 5 tells us that we should pray for that in some cases. But we should not expect that the experience of the apostles will be ours exactly. And really, if, if you have that, you know, to some Christians when they hear that, they think, well, that's a really big bummer. But if you have an eternal perspective, that should not be all that disappointing or dissatisfying to you. Here's why. Consider again the two people Peter raised in Acts 9. Where are they now? Those legs of Aeneas, which were miraculously healed, they're not still walking the earth. In fact, right now, those legs are worse off than when they were paralyzed. They are rotting in a tomb and have been for a long time. They'll be raised up one day, but not right now. Tabitha was raised and lived for a few more years, maybe. Maybe she lived for a few more decades. Maybe she lived for a few more months. We don't know. What happened to Tabitha in this upper room was not a resurrection, properly speaking. This was just a resuscitation. Tabitha's body was not transformed into a glorified immortal body like Christ's resurrection body. No, she just woke up again in her mortal body to live a little longer under the curse of sickness and death that covers this world. And then at some point she died again. And you know what? Her contemporaries, the apostles, they all died too. We need better miracles to hope for than just ones like these in Acts 9. God has promised us better miracles, even us, still today us. Something better in Christ is the miracle of a true resurrection. For eternal life in a sin-free, curse-free creation clothed with immortality, dwelling with a holy, blessed God. And we can actually hear that promise in our passage in Acts 9. In the original Greek, the word used to describe Peter's two miracles is the same word used throughout the New Testament to describe the resurrection of Jesus. Peter tells the paralytic in verse 34, rise. Verse 34 tells us immediately he rose. Peter speaks to Tabitha in verse 40, Arise. Verse 41 says, Peter raised her up. That's, that's the same Greek verb in all those instances. And it is the triumphant word of the gospel. Jesus rose from the dead after dying for our sins. This is why this passage is such good news for us. Because the power that raised Aeneas from his bed and the power that raised Dorcas in the upper room is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul prays in the book of Ephesians that you would have the eyes of your hearts opened, Christian, so that you would understand that that same power is now at work in you, 
and is the guarantee that you too will be raised from the dead to eternal life with Christ if you're trusting in him. These signs of Acts 9 are wonderful, especially because they confirm the apostles' testimony that Jesus is risen. His rising saves us forever. Promises we we will be raised with him, like him, totally forgiven, totally freed from sin. This is what God gives us freely instead of eternal judgment that we deserve for our sins, all of us. He gives us this to all who simply rely on what Jesus did to save sinners and give their lives to him. That's the salvation God offers in Christ, and it's better than any resuscitation. These are better promises. The real gospel has better promises than the prosperity gospel. This is better infinitely. And that's why it's wonderful to read that the ultimate result of this woman's resuscitation was the eternal salvation of many. Look at verse 42 of Acts 9. And it became known, verse 42, it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So this second miracle has the same effect as the first by God's great Grace and power. People believed in the Lord and turned to the Lord. Now I want us to consider again the bigger picture, the bigger purpose of this passage, of this double miracle story in the sweep of the book of Acts. Okay, the Apostle Peter's back on the scene. He's doing apostolic things, signs and wonders. He's about to do a really apostolic thing and extend the foundation of the church, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles so that they can be brought into salvation, so so that the gospel can go out to the ends of the earth. And I want to show you that this Tabitha miracle in particular sets the stage for that to happen next. Now this next part might require extra attention and hard thinking. Go with me. I I told you Peter's rising Tabitha purposefully recalls similar miracles Jesus performed. It also recalls purposefully miracles that other men performed even before Jesus. Has anyone thought that? Who might that be? The great Old Testament prophets Elijah and Elisha. Like Peter did for Tabitha, Both of those prophets raised people from the dead and they did it specifically in upper rooms to comfort grieving widows. Elijah revived a widow's son in 1 Kings 17. Elisha did the same, his protege, in 2 Kings 4. And then Jesus raised a widow's son. We saw that in Luke 17 And you know what? When he did that, the people cried out, a great prophet has risen among us because they realized this man's done the same thing that the great prophets Elijah and Elisha has done. He's raised a widow's son. There are so many parables, parallels. I wish I had time to show you them all. 
but so many parallels between Elijah's raising the widow's son, Elisha raising the widow's son, Jesus raising the widow's son, and Peter raising the widow's supporter, Tabitha. And these are not pointless coincidences. There are too many matching details for that to be the case. What is the point of these connections? A couple. For one thing, this further reinforces the Elijah theme that began back in Acts 1. Does anyone remember way back to Acts 1? When Christ ascended to heaven. Or think about this. Remember, think back to the Old Testament. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was the only other man we see in the Bible who was taken up to heaven like that. And Elijah, who, when Elisha, his disciple, his protege, when, when he raised a widow's son like Elijah did before him, that was to show that the spirit of Elijah was resting on Elisha. That's what King says. So the same power and spirit that worked in Elijah's ministry was working in Elisha's, and that's what Elijah promised would happen if Elisha saw him when Elijah was taken up to heaven. I hope you're getting the name straight. I may not be saying them correctly. Now, following that exact same pattern, Jesus promised to give his disciples his power and his spirit just before he ascended to heaven, and they saw him. Why did the Lord do it in that way to match the pattern of of Elijah and Elisha? He did it to teach us this, that the spirit of Jesus was going to rest on his disciples and empower their witness and their ministry, just like. Elisha walked in the power and the spirit of Elijah. That was Acts 1. Now come back here to Acts 9. Peter now raises a widow's friend like Jesus had raised the widow's son in an Elijah-like way before him. And that further shows that what Jesus said back in Acts 1, that has really happened. Peter has the spirit of Jesus on him to walk in Christ's works. Now, let me tell you this. This is not just obscure biblical trivia. This is good news for you if you are a Christian, that as a disciple of Jesus, you walk in the spirit and power of Jesus every much as bit as Elisha walked in the spirit and power of Elijah. When we see Peter's Christ-like, Elijah-like miracle, we also know that it is the spirit of Jesus who's ultimately orchestrating all that's happening And we'll orchestrate what's happening next, the gospel going to the Gentiles. Now, there's something else you need to see in this connection in Acts 9. You still with me? When Jesus came to earth and he began his ministry in Galilee, he compared himself to a couple of prophets. Guess who? Elijah and Elisha. It says Luke chapter 4. Luke's the prequel to the book of Acts. This matters. Luke 4, Jesus kicks off his earthly ministry By publicly reading Isaiah in his hometown. Do you remember this? He reads Isaiah, and then he says, answering silence, he says, that scripture's fulfilled in me. And then people who knew him growing up were like, isn't this Joseph's son? And then Jesus responds to that resistance, and he says in Luke 4.24, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Here comes the part about Elijah and Elisha. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel 
in the days of Elijah, when a great famine came all over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, widows in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, that's Gentile country, to a woman who was a widow. That would be a Gentile widow. And then there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, again, a Gentile. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you're resisting me, and let me tell you what's going to happen because of your resistance. Remember what God did when your forefathers resisted Elijah and Elisha? God sent him to the Gentiles to bless them. And then Acts 9. Wow. What, is, what are we on the brink of in Acts 9? Well, back up to Luke 7. In Luke 7, when Jesus does his Elijah-like work of raising the widow's son, do you know what happened immediately before that? Jesus encounters a Roman military officer who shows great faith in him, and Jesus says about this Gentile, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Luke 7, 9. And then right after that, Jesus raises the widow's son, reminding everyone of the great prophets Elijah and Elisha, as if to say, again, now on the heels of this Gentile's great faith, remember, remember Israel, God sent them to the Gentiles. I'm going there too. My gospel is... So in Acts 9, when the Lord causes Peter right here, right here of all places, to perform his Elijah-like work of raising Tabitha, it's while we're right on the brink of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Beautiful. We could push the connection even deeper if we had time. It's amazing. If we know our Bibles... And we know that God works through patterns and types to help explain his ways and works. Then we can hear in the miracles of Acts 9, God saying softly, get ready, it's about to happen. I'm sending my salvation to the ends of the earth, even places far away from Israel where I've worked for so long. This passage brings us to the brink of that great moment in the history of redemption, and it does far more than we realized at first glance. Now we need to add one more short sentence to our outline in closing that captures the ending of the story. Peter returns to the front line. He raises a paralyzed man. He raises a dead woman. And then finally, lastly, Peter remains with a tanner. Peter remains with a tanner. That's verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And this verse really gets us teetering over the edge of the gospel going to the Gentiles. As a tanner, Simon worked with animal hides to make leather. So he was continually working with dead animals. That meant he was continually unclean. With respect to the Jewish laws and who could come near to God in the temple in Jerusalem. And Peter starts to stay with this man who would have been considered unclean by many Jews. Well, who else was considered unclean by them? Gentiles. 
It's like Peter is already starting to move into the turn lane to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Simon's unclean occupation will prove especially significant in chapter 10. He's working with animal corpses. And what's going to happen? When Peter is staying with this man, God's going to lead him to the Gentiles with a vision. Do you know what that vision's about? Unclean animals. I think we're supposed to feel a huge sense of anticipation when we get here to to verse 43. The stage is all set for God to show that even Gentiles, to men and women of every nation, without respect to their ethnicity or their family history or their ancestry, to people from every nation, God will grant repentance leading to eternal life. And so we'll have to wait a week And with all this anticipation, we leave Simon with a tanner on the brink of something wonderful. In chapter 10 it comes next Sunday. Lord, thank you for this great plan. It's so obvious to us that you have orchestrated this great plan of salvation, that you are summing up all things in Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to understand you and your ways better because of what we've looked at today in your word, and I pray that you would help us now to sing your praise and to remember the death of your son at this table in true faith for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.